right. Hello, 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 everyone. This is the It Cast Real Talk on Sex, and I'm your host, Nika Shirell. The It Cast is our community outreach podcast that increases diversity in conversations on health and sexuality. Through this work, we are creating a world where all people feel loved, honored, and respected. We have some upcoming events this season. Uh, here this September 17th and 18th, we have the Global Sexual Health and Freedom Summit. Um, early bird tickets are coming soon, so go ahead and RSVP at sexhealthsummit.com. We also have the Chase coming this October. You can learn about the Chase at chase.pet, uh, and that's gonna be a fun, uh, playful event. <laughs> Okay, uh, if you want one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, please visit my link tree. You can go ahead and book a free connection session where we get to talk about whatever will empower you. Um, also, ask us anything. We wanna hear from you here on the show. So you can also leave questions. There's a little survey on the link tree as well. You can get access to our bonus content uh, at patreon.com. And I slash Nika Shirell and see like all the conversation we have before and after the show, um, get access to the backstage. Please subscribe to this YouTube channel and share this work with your community. Okay, <laughs> I'm excited about this topic. So this week's topic is real talk on why black people don't talk about sex. Today we have Melissa Munganzo Murphy, uh, she is the CEO of Muganzo Entertainment. Uh, uh, sorry, Melissa is an actress, humanitarian, philanthropist, and educator who believes in the power of Black ingenuity, being the social catalyst of innovation, advancement, and change. She is, she is the CEO of Muganzo Entertainment, and all of the things she's most proud of, she celebrates her queerness, Blackness, and womanhood, confidence dripped in self-love. Ooh. Melissa, join us on the show. What's going on, everybody? I'm so excited to be here. Nika, thank you for having me, and I'm ready to get into it. Yes. <laughs> Woo, we got a lot to talk about today. <laughs> a lot. We got a lot. Mm, mm. Okay, so um, go ahead and tell us a bit about yourself, why you're doing this particular show, like topic and whatnot, and yeah, let's let them get to know you. Go ahead. Yeah, so my name is Melissa Muganzo Murphy. My pronouns are she, they, and sis. For those that are not familiar with pronouns, uh, you introduce yourself with pronouns and the way that you would like folks to address yourself. Of all my pronouns, sis is the most important to me because it's a Black identified pronoun and it just it speaks to the folks that I directly identify with. And I think that's very, very important. I am a CEO, I am a business owner, I am a creative, I'm a humanitarian. I am an archivist of Black history, but of all things, I'm a Black girl fanatic, and I'm so honored to be able to, you know, step into my power and live in purpose on purpose and allow my legacy to shine bright while I am here. Uh, my phrase in life right now is, I'm not here to waste my grandmother's prayers, and it's all about doing this restorative justice work within myself, about going past my fears and owning the destiny that is meant for me because we cannot allow time to make us think that we have much of it, right? Because we don't know and COVID taught us that. We have to step into our power, whether people talk mess about us or not. And with that, um, in 2018, I decided to shift gears on people, but step into the destiny that was already planned for me and step into entertainment. 
and you know live this life as an actor and a producer and a director um, with the the heart in mind to be a social justice activist right that's what this entertainment lens does for me personally and that's what i'm able to give to the world so that's what i do and that's who i am mm, purpose on purpose I have, wow. Okay, uh -huh. I love that. And I love you, grandma. Like, <laughs> She's dope. Grandma's dope. <laughs> that's, yeah, that was deeper than deep. I mean, that that hits because it really is hearing you share that, like, this is your calling. Like, this is, like, this is the heart and soul of who you are. And I love the social justice aspect. I love the restorative humanitarian, like, those things are incredibly necessary and very needed. Um, so, so in terms of that, uh, you, so the topic, <laughs> cause thank you, grandma, <laughs> there were prayers, there were dreams and there was a lot going on. So yeah. go right ahead. So, uh, when I think about the conversation on why black folks don't talk about sex, I think the reason why I may be a good candidate for this conversation is my own journey with my sexuality, my identity, the way in which I was raised to think about sex as something that was performative rather than pleasure-based. Um, as someone that grew up in a hyper-religious society, a hyper-cultural society, I am East African and West Indian. My father hails from Kenya, East Africa. My mother hails from St. Thomas Virgin Islands. So I've always known that Blackness was vast and regal and big and it's global and it's you know interculturally diverse. Like I've always known those things. Everybody else is just late to the party. I've always known those things. Right. I, you know, I carry my father's last name. So it, it, it wasn't anything new to me that Blackness was everywhere. But what I realized is that in my communities in which I resided in, in the environments that I was in, everything was cool to talk about except for sex, sexual orientation, sexual identity, sexual attraction. Yeah. We could talk about everything else, racial injustice, sexism, racial discrimination, global politics, even environmental justice. But when it came to us as human beings, as sexual beings, it was like, nah, nah. Yeah. And I didn't realize how much that that a lack of conversation was stifling me until I got to college and had a breakdown at mm. a leadership retreat that talked about uh, queer liberation and sexual pleasure and attraction and, um, you know, capitalism and this sexism and white gaze and all of it and how that shaped the way that I thought sex relationships, intimacy and pleasure was supposed to be. And once I understood that media is ran by a certain group of folks yep. and that's not real, right? And that we are missing so many stories from so many writers and so many authors. I was like, oh, so I'm not a weirdo, right? Like that's one of those things. Not alone. You that, you, yeah, you <laughs> that moment like, oh, you feel me. Okay, big bet, cool, 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 you know? And that made me want to journey on this, this journey of liberation and, and you know, increasing visibility for black folks like me. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's incredibly real. And for people out there watching, when like, oof, there's a there's so as you were talking about, like, there is no conversation around these things. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of dis disassociation. And this is not to say that like black people talk about fucking, 
They right. talk about what feels good and like, you know, like how can I, you know, pleasure someone else? Like the, there are these things that completely leave out this whole other realm of what you're talking about, like the health aspect and the, you know, the personal agency aspect, like there are layers to it. And all of those go by the wayside in the black communities. There's a lot of fear. I'll call it, you know, I mean, and I'm not going to speak for every black person, but I know how I grew up and what I mm-hmm. experienced. There's a lot of fear around mm-hmm. that entire conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. Absolutely. And I feel like, first of all, the fear isn't even real, right? It really is people coming to this understanding that the, the stories and the myths that were passed down with religious and cultural undertones mm-hmm. were like made up for the sake of like white supremacy and white superiority and capitalism and the suppression of black folks, right? And when you come to that understanding, so people say you wake up, you arrive, you reach a sense of like purpose, you realize that there were only certain certain stories shared globally with the intention of those things, right? Capitalism, globalization, white supremacy, white superiority. And then you think about how, when I think about how womb holders have not had a lot of say so in, in a lot of spaces globally for a long time. And when they did, those narratives were erased by the time you get to understanding yourself and what you like and don't like, sometimes people are trapped in relationships where they hate having sex with their person because it's like, this is not fun or cool. Don't right. like this. I don't want you near me, touching me. Don't get on top of me. Don't get behind me. Don't do nothing. Don't even look at me. You're right. Don't kiss me, please. Because this, I'm not getting pleasured. Yeah, there's sex there, but there's no pleasure there. Or people realize like, wow. You know, I never really been good at this type of sex, but I'm glad that I've seen other versions now because I really want that type of sex. And right. that's like this is one isn't fun, right? Uh, but if you suppress those stories and the ways in which people can have sex and find pleasure, then people are stuck in these like miserable ways of thinking or miserable ways of being. Yeah. When in reality, we're all trying to feel good and look good and connect, right? We're all trying to do that. Yes. You know, one of the things that, you know, that came up as you were sharing that is like, I feel like Black people get sexualized at a very young age. Absolutely. Yeah. Like there is this, there is that, that whole space that leads to the conversation around why it's not talked about and the levels of shame. And, you know, I really feel like there's this conversation around like rape is something that can only happen to white women. Mm-hmm. outside of that box it, it's not prioritized is the word I'll use today but there's a history there like there's a whole history uh please let's talk about that part <laughs> yeah I mean absolutely let's let's just take it back right let's just let's just take it back let's take it back a couple of hundred situations ago so let's talk about the way in which black womb holder bodies right and say enslaved black womb holders let's talk about how slave owners right vigilantes can make peace within themselves ethically on how to mass breed the laborers let's let's kind of assess what that looks like if we say having pleasurable and desirable sex 
what someone there told us a laborer and less than and is not entitled to rights is now violence, then that ethically wouldn't feel good. But if we say, oh, that's just the help, right? We don't have to consider them humane. Then we could do whatever and however to them, but yep. don't do that to white bodies, white womb holders, right? Because then that would be violence. But when we think about the way in which we even are entered into Black identity in the United States, it's always with this like slave based, enslaved based rhetoric. And a part of that rationale is to allow people to think less of Black bodies. So, of course, you're not going to learn that sex and pleasure and attraction and relationship is something that you deserve or desire because you were told you're supposed to be a laborer. And when we think about how black mm. history is even entered into the K through 12 system, it always starts in slavery. Like black folks didn't exist before then. But again, that is very intentional, right? right? We want you to know from a very young age that we need you to get out there and work because you're the labor. We need you out there to get out there and bear children. We need you to get out there because we need more of you to labor. Right. We don't care about your humanity. We could care less. Yeah. And what you're seeing specifically in present day 2022 is that tides are changing and there is a fear that people are gonna arrive really quickly, right? To the erasure of white supremacy. And that's why you see these rides of these proud boys, these new age yeah. clans folks. Sorry, these, I got they're, they're having They're having panic attacks. And that includes sometimes their white women counterparts, right? That also feel this sense of fear, which is why people say, oh, you can uh, marry anybody, but don't marry anybody black, right? Because there's a power, right, dynamic between, uh, well, when you breathe with Black folks, now they're Black, and ugh, right? Right, right. Ooh, right. We, have to, we have to take it back, right? Black That's... women were not seen as anything less than bed warmers, birthing folks, and laborers. They were cleaners. They are not meant to be anything that is seen as humane. Yeah, yeah, yeah in the kitchen, in the fields. I mean, it's deep. And like, and what you're talking about is like having, the part about having a child with someone black that now makes that child black. Like, let's talk about colorism. Cause there's a whole scape in there. Um, oh my goodness. And I'm, <laughs> so we're gonna come back to that question. We do have a question in the chat, um, but that whole conversation around in the black community, being lighter skin makes you more valuable. Absolutely. And, in the white community, anything less than white makes you completely untouchable in these contexts. So there is this, there's this whole conversation around breeding. You know, it's like the bed warmers were the light-skinned people. And where did that come from? And this whole conversation. So um, I definitely want to get to that. Who definitely. Um, and I want to kick this question to you real quick. Do you think the strength of the Black church has a lot to do with not speaking about sex? Uh, we're going there. Okay. So <laughs> I see, no, I'm not going to say I think. I've, I've been working really hard and removing think and say, I know. What I know to be true, right? What I know to be true is the power of the Black church has shifted. And when I say the Black church, I'm talking about 
Western European paced influence version of Christianity in the United States taught to black folks for the sake of enslavement and colonialism. That's what I say, because black folks are not monolithic, right? Black folks are Muslims. Black folks are Jewish. Black folks are Buddhist, right? Black folks are atheists, right? And so when I, when people say or refer to the black church, I'm like, are we going to break that down to exactly what we're talking about? Primarily in the Southern part of the United States. Like, let's, let's just bring it all the way home, right? Wait, wait, wait. Can I get an amen? Amen. So we got it. And so that influence has shaped so much of how everybody now wants to go to church, right? But a part of the Black church, if we think about how the Black church even got started, it really is the one day during the week and the one service where slave owners said, y'all go do you, right? That's when people could go and plan, right? C commune, kick it with their homegirl. Well, and, and I got to throw this one in too, because this is something to consider. Mm -hmm. So Sunday was also the day of the week when the slaves had to get dolled up to go to church with their masters. And the Bible was the only book that came into their living crossroads. So now you've got this doctrine of ownership and slavery and punishment and rules that is now like that's the only context that you have. And the day that you get to be clean and presentable is the one day of the week when you're being presented to other people. So there's a whole conversation of the big church lady hats and the Sunday best and all these other things that came right out of that conversation. So absolutely. And when we take it there, right, we see how that, that influence is the same, although the rhetoric has shifted a little bit, but that influence is the same, right? Put on your Sunday's best, right? Mm -hmm. And people don't know where that came from. A part of that conversation for Black folks on Sunday, you don't even get to talk about sexual relationships or sex because it was a space for organizing and freedom. And for a really long time, safety and organizing was only able mm. to happen at church for black folks. And then, you know, uh, the rise of the women's movement, the rise of civil rights, the many waves of civil rights, the rise of where we can find black empowerment through black speakers, right? When we look about great orders, they usually were preachers because they were mm -hmm. looking for empowerment. They're looking for a brighter day. They're looking for a leader. They just so happen to find them in the church. But what you found is that that narrative of like, the black church is like the savior is like, wait a minute, let's talk about the root of this. Like black folks can go more places. Now there are more black, you know, authors and, and there's more black pieces of literature. Like we have expanded. Yeah. Right. But for, we have also been indoctrinated though, that this is what we're supposed to do. And this is how we're supposed to act, let alone the world, even thinking that black women, women specifically, but like black women, black womb holders, black folks, like we can't even get into the liberation of sex until we talk about the liberation of people that identify as women, right? Like people no. don't want people to be sexually liberated. If you identify as women, 
they're like, well, that means you can only do these six things. And if you do more than those six things, then you're violating what we think you should be able to do, which is also why we can't talk about sex. Because the moment we could talk about pleasure, there's an ego that comes with, well, if I can't pleasure you, something's wrong with you and not me, right? Right, right. Now that whole whole doctrine of uh, fault and blame because things aren't working out. You talked about it and this is so spot on. I tell people all the time, the summer of love was not for or about black people. There's a whole lot of people that got left out of that conversation. And the undertone of that is the trauma. It is these contexts of where on a national level, sorry, global level, it is okay to abuse people in darker skinned bodies. Like, especially when we talk about the peculiar institution here in the United States, AKA Mm -hmm. slavery, y'all. And Mm -hmm. so like, when you look at that, it's like, oh, we have full right to do whatever we want with you. You're not even human. And so now with the epigenetics and the generational trauma, mm-hmm. how, like, how, but we're still going through that. We're still breaking those chains and still stepping into agency in our bodies. Mm-hmm. It's, it's absolutely true. And what you find is that Black youth have always been the catalyst for change. Anytime something was just like not right, it usually was a Black teenager standing up, getting all day friends and saying, we should do something about this. That is what empowered their parents, their grandparents. It's usually our Black youth. And today we see the same thing globally. When Black youth are like, this is cool. This is bad. This is right. This is fucked up. The world then follows suit, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's up to us to empower our Black youth to be educated about their agency and their power because they are not only the future they are the right now right <laughs> the right now they're the ones uh you know checking their teachers on black history they're like ah, 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 that's actually not what happened <laughs> they're the ones encouraging their white friends to go check their family members at holiday gatherings. Like, yep. hey, that was racist as fuck. And what we're not gonna do around here on Samantha is, you know, they're, they are the ones that are influencing people. I even think about when black folks, you know, decided to protest TikTok and the world didn't know what to do. I'm like, black teenagers decided to not dance for y'all for 30 seconds at a time. And you didn't know what to do. That's power. Shucking and driving. Yes. So now they said, you're going to have to pay me. You're going to have to pay me to do a little 30 second routine. Yeah. So it is, it is powerful. And so now it's time for us to talk to black teenagers about sex, about pleasure, about attraction, about what they deserve. Because everybody deserves to feel loved, worthy, supported, attracted, you know, wanted connection, if that's what they so choose, you should be able to have that. Yeah, no, 100%, 100%. Um, one of the comments out there, Venom 5-4, uh, Venom OG 5-4, uh, <laughs> all indoctrination and no spiritual education. So that's that right back on that religion conversation. And um, yeah the the whole conversation around like black identity 
You know, like there's this black identified archetype that you have to be this way, you have to look that way, you have to walk and talk and all these things. And as we get more communication, as we get more connected, we see that there's diversity out there. There's a lot of diversity and you don't have to fit into this specific or particular box. And I, I understand that actually is scary. That's scary for a lot of black people because there's a lot, there's a lot ingrained in what we can't talk about and what we can't do. You know, and a lot of that did come from the church. A lot of that has come from the, the white consciousness and the historic aspect of slavery. Um, it is deep. It's deep. It's, it is, it is so deep. And when we even think about um, bodies, right? Like what bodies are supposed to look like. As a, a proud chocolate girl, I remember being told I was undesirable, unattractive. Uh, people would only want me for my personality. My hair was terrible. Um, I, I smell like, I just remember hearing, and then I had an African, I have Af African last name. They were just like, where are you from? Your food is terrible. Like, and this is not just like kids. This is like all ages, right? right. And sometimes even family. And so you are growing up, i.e. me, I am growing up already battling what society says about chocolate girls, but not only that, the people that were the closest to me were reiterating those things. And I remember my aunt, who is chocolate skin just like me, she would be the one to be like, girl, wear that, you know, own that, do that, you know, and she believed in sexual liberation. I remember when I was uh, 17 going to prom, she actually came to my house and said, is tonight the night you're having sex? If so, I want to shave you. Like she, did she, wait, what? Oh yeah, she she was so, and not in a like, oh my God, this is incest. It's more so like, I want to show you how to be comfortable, how to be around yourself. Like, I want you to know your body. I want you to know how to make yourself feel presentable. I want, you, she was just so open about it. Mm -hmm. um, she also was like, are you having oral sex? If so, we need to talk about what this could look like. She was just very open. Now for me, I was like, Okay, I'm hella traumatized. I'm not even thinking about any of this. I'm not even liberated <laughs> sexually. But I remember thinking to myself, wow, you're a badass bitch for being <coughs> so proud and open and honest and opening up a space for curiosity. Like she was just so open. And what I what I appreciate about her is she always showed me that chocolate girls like myself deserve luxury, deserve good things, deserve to be wanted and worthy and to want nice things. And I think that was one of the biggest things that I got from her. And yeah. what I appreciate about that is now I can give that same rhetoric to my daughter, especially in a queer relationship where it's little, people are already demonizing, you know, our family. And I'm sure my daughter has experienced a lot of negative commentary about like, oh, you got two moms. Oh, that's weird, right? Oh, you, and, and you know, and she's been made fun of in her own way and had to find her own confidence about having queer parents. And mm -hmm. we've had to move forward in our family, even when families weren't supportive of us, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, there are places, you know, like I hear the kids these days and it's like, okay, like some of them, some of them are cool with it. It's making sense, the whole gender normative conversation and or non-normative. And there's this, there are places where you don't want to go, 
-hmm. And this is a whole conversation all its own. And yeah, like it's a, to have to deal with the discrimination and, um, you know, getting back to the colorism part and the dark skin part, um, ah, everything that you said and everything that I ever heard about being dark skin was that I would never be able to find love. Oh yeah. Like when you just wrapping some, all that shit up, like you're never gonna find love, you'll be good for sex. Pretty much. And like much. this shit from a young age, like at the yeah. first thing that was said to me, uh, probably not the first, the one that stuck. <laughs> right. Was you're going to be, you're going to be too fat to get a man. I, and people are literally telling you this out of what, out of love, out of concern, out of preparation. Like what, what is the rhetoric behind that? But people right. genuinely will tell you that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, there are things, there are things like, um, always my, my thing was, uh, my word short, fat, black, and ugly. Like it took me so long to get over those four words. Cause that was how I knew myself. That's how everybody related to me. So that's how I started to relate to myself. That's how I describe myself. Like it was rooted and it was also rooted in the, the thought and the shame of like, I'm never going to find anybody. I can't trust anybody to actually be interested in me because I'm all these horrible things that people yeah. have been telling me I am my whole life. Right. So, right. you know, lack of intimacy. Go ahead. And it and I, I and I don't think people understand how vulnerable you and I are being right now because while we're on the other side of that, those were clearly like sore spots, right? Those were sore spots that stung. And I mean, I remember hearing this like in elementary school. When did you hear those those words? I, I was about eight. So in third grade. Right. And of all the life that we have both lived, elementary school and that that wording still plays deep seated, you know, influence in our lives. And so, you know, and I say that because I'm a fibroid survivor and um, I remember my family like ignoring me telling them about my symptoms about like hey my period is intense and all they say is you know oh you know your auntie had a bad period moving on and you're like okay that's good for auntie but what about me like I'm I'm going through it right um and I remember when I was 23 no 22 all my friends were like on birth control. So I was like, maybe I'm missing out. Like, let me get on birth control like the big girls, right? So um, I get on birth control and my fibroids just, one of my uh, clinicians say, it's like they're at hometown buffet. They're just living their best life. They're growing uh, because fibroids are based on, they feed off of hormones and sugar. And what is birth control? synthetic hormones and we already have our natural hormones but then there's like synthetic hormones and then you know certain foods that we eat or infuse with even more hormones so yeah. she was like right now your fibroids are doing a thing and I remember sex for me at that time was the most anxiety inducing experience of my life I was bleeding all the time my weight was all over the place up and down and up and down and up and down I had cystic acne I had migraines I was bleeding everywhere, bleeding through everything. I didn't wear white for years. Like this was really happening. And I thought about people that are experiencing IVF. I thought about people that have endometriosis or PCOS 
or people that have, you know, various uterine cancers or people that have had severe hysterectomies and it didn't work out well and went straight into menopause, people that have myomectomies and how people are like, but you can still have sex. And it's like, but wait a minute, let's talk about pleasure. Let's talk about, you know, us feeling confident in our body because this is also a part of sex, right? It's not just about penetration, right? It's about people feeling confident and exploring themselves and liberating themselves and feeling good and being in this connection. And sex for me during that time, on top of all the emotional and mental health things that I was going through was horrible. And I just remember thinking, wow, all my partner at the time wants to do is just have sex, but I don't want to, right? right. This is fun for me. Right. So, and yeah. then to be conditioned to not be able to say no, mm-hmm. or like, like that's a whole survival conversation underneath everything else that's being talked about here. It's like, like it, when you don't have the agency, if you don't have the, you can't say, yes, I want this. No, I don't want that. Absolutely. Um, if you're focused on a se- sex as an act, sex act, then you don't like, there is no connection. I'm like, sex is a conversation. It's right. a dance. Like right. it's, it doesn't look the same way every time. And like right. you said, it, it's performative. I have to do this for that goal. Or even when people say, if you don't do this, you're going to lose your partner. I remember hearing that all the time. Well, if you don't have sex, you're going to lose your man. I was like, dang, okay. So, or, you know, and I feel like now me and my wife, we are so connected that it's like, whatever the frequency is, we're connected and, and we're just not taught about spiritual bonds or emotional intelligence or, you know, that our bodies are going to look completely different as we get older, right? All we see is, well, if you're older, you're less attractive. When it's like to be older, to even age is a, is a privilege. Right. And attraction doesn't has nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with who you are as a person. So yeah, all those things play into people performing sex rather than enjoying sexual experiences. Yeah, yeah. And that's why we don't talk about sex. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah, no. The, and, and so you talked about, um, sexual pleasure and the whole hysterectomy conversation. Um, I, I actually, I, I did recently, uh, do some research around, uh, with hysterectomies, whether or not the cervix is a viable part of women's pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I ain't gonna lie. I mean, I, yeah, mm-hmm, I, so I knew that. And mm-hmm. <laughs> the doctors in the medical industry are like, oh, we're doing a hysterectomy, we're going to take the cervix too. And it's like, that is not, it, first off, it doesn't have to happen. And second, it's like to understand each of these different parts and how they work, it's not something, it's not something that people in Western medicine are really focused on. You know, it's like, you know, cut out the problem, dissect it. There's all these things and deal with it. You know, like talking about the black community, it's like, they they say people of color don't go to the doctor. (laughs) We could talk about that. (laughs) That they have all these health issues that are specific to black people. Can we just talk about the medical industry and how they've treated black people well we're gonna go there so we need to this and this is historical fact so anybody that's on this call you can literally google this as i'm saying it because this is fact in 1855 dr j marion sims 
established the first women's hospital in the United States. It's a fact. What we need to also couple that with, which is also fact, is J. Marion Sims was a very rich slave owner who just so happened to be a physician. In his clinician tenure, he decided that he would perfect these surgeries that he's now globally noted for and heavily quoted for on slaves. Because we talked about how enslaved bodies didn't have rights, liberties, protections, or weren't valued the same. So you can't do harm to them, right? It's labor. You're working on labor. So these medical tools were designed based out of Black vaginal body parts. These exams were put together off of Black bodies. And specifically, why I bring up the First Women's Hospital, it was a slave quarters in his backyard, okay? So when we talk about procedures now, where you need very specific scientific data and incisions, right? How do we perfect that? Because people go to the hospital now in confidence, you're signing off paperwork, we're talking about pros and cons, using those, what can happen, what the healing process is like. But science tells us we have to confirm that this is how you do that. And how do you validate that something is true? You have to try it. Mm -hmm. The question is always, who are you going to try it on? Right, right. And when we think about the establishment of the American Medical Association in 1876 and the American Gynecological Society in the 1890s, we have to also think about how we got that. Right. And they were all set up by the same person mm -hmm. who was also a very wealthy slave owner who had the first women's hospital, which was a slave shack in the back of his house. So then when we think about, oh, why does my grandmother tell me drink this and eat this and let's see how you feel in the morning rather than go to the hospital? Oh, that's right. Because there were night doctors like J. Marion Sims who would just pull you out of bed and say, I want to try something. Stitch you up and have you back in the fields in the morning. We have to honestly think about this. When we think about Black mother mortality rates, when we think about Black parental mortality rates in the hospital, we got to go back to the research, right? The research wasn't there to protect Black bodies. It just wasn't. We were there to be experimented on, but it wasn't for the sake of our healing, of our getting better, of our life sustainability. No, 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 no. That was for white bodies, Right white supremacy, right? White superiority, white longevity, cultural hegemony. It wasn't for black bodies. So when people say, I went to the hospital, my doctor didn't listen to me. Yeah, that's real. When people say I went to the hospital and my doctor was a woman and she still didn't care. Yeah, that's real. When people go to the doctor and say, I even had a doctor of color that was similar to me in identity and they still didn't fuck with me. That is real because this is, generations of systematic oppression institutionally funded by the feds right. right we're talking about sterilization programs of black wombs 
literally federally funded by the feds for the sake of black erasure out of oh, the yeah. fear of birthing more black people. We're talking about in 1976, right? The state of Virginia had to sue the feds to say that you have been running a 30 year sterilization program. Just last year, California apologized to black people and said, you know what? We got wind of a generation of sterilization programs that we funded are bad. Nothing. Name in this database. And when we come to how we're going to compensate you, we'll be in touch. Like this is legitimately how people are saying, I know how to give you back your value, right? I'm sorry is not going to cut it. This life is lost. This ability to, you know, live comfortably is lost, but it, it's a mess. Yeah. Oh, and it was set up to be a mess. Yeah, 100%. You know, it didn't even, and this this is one of the powerful moments. It's like as much, you know, medical racism and things that I've crossed and I've talked about on this show, it did not even remotely occur to me that if you want to be able to cut someone open and keep them alive. And keep them alive. You have to practice on cutting people open. And keeping them alive. That shit makes sense. Like 100%. And like, you might get taken away by the night doctor and never get seen, be seen again. Auntie left last night and that we haven't seen auntie since. I mean, this, this is serious, right? On top of, we're exploring, um, we're just exploring birthing folks, right? Which means we got to test this out during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because yeah, mm-hmm. because how do we know that it takes nine months and you can actually birth the baby at six months and sustain it? You know what I'm saying? Like when you start to think about all the research, people say trust the science. Okay, but let me tell you why Black folks have a hard time doing that. Let me tell right. you why that's hard. Right. Let me tell you why that's going to be a challenge, because who's who's running the science who's funding the science and what is the scientific question that you're trying to prove and is that based on eugenics xenophobia transphobia homophobia racism sexism because i got questions right i got questions all the questions mm-hmm. i got opinions i got opinions um and i love what you said regarding eugenics because it's really funny when when an institution or people in general get a whiff of their own shit like when i moved out here i knew that california was the leading state in the eugenics movement california's youngest you know got to do everything the best it's on fire california's in the lead they sterilized more people than any other state in this country they were winning and then all of a sudden they caught wind of it that was just now a hundred years ago, all the way up until still happening. You didn't just catch wind of it. You just acknowledged it. Yeah, I mean, these, these, are, these are legit stories. And when we think about why, I've been really having this like moment of humility with myself with our parents and our grandparents and our elders in our society, because I'm sure it takes an act of God. And I say that 
not as a religious person, but as someone that understands insurance, right? It has to take an act of God to not look at another person of European descent and not want to slap the shit out of them, right? Because you literally have survived a time in which you were spit at, yelled at, told you were less than, drug, beaten, incarcerated, raped, right? In your lifetime. Mm-hmm. And now we're supposed to be hunky-dory and holding hands? That has got to be an act of God to literally bring children into this world and tell them don't hate white folks. It's It's got to be mentally. Yeah. It's, and to not want to not want to meet that same energy. And you know that I think it comes with the how much do you see and are you paying attention? Yeah, because there's a lot of a lot of undertones of love of white people, you know, love of whiteness. And mm-hmm. it's not like a wholesome like, oh, I love it so much, but it is a hatred of blackness. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we talked about was not doing certain things because it makes you seem culturally more black. And it's like to be to have to be raised with some shit like that is really crazy. It's really crazy. It's absolutely it's and I, and when we talk about like colorism, right? I think about um it's interesting because I I'm multi-ethnic, but I identify as a black American. And every time I think about like my parents are no longer married and I think about, I have my dad's whole face. I mean, it's copy paste, right? My parents are not (laughs) together, but every time my mom looks at me, she's reminded of this man, right? Like there was a time in which we were together and whatever that looked like. But I think about people that come from a range of backgrounds where they're reminded about everything we said, right? racism, sexism, eugenics, um, scientific mistreatment, like they're reminded and they look at these very innocent human beings and they either are reminded like, wow, I did not want to be with the person that helped bring you here. I had a horrible situation with the person that helped bring you here, or I did not have good sex with the person that brought you here, or I had sex one time and you popped up and do the personal ethics. Here we are. You, I mean, there's so many thoughts and I feel like I'm having more humility about what we see when we see people in the universe, like what that reminds us of and just having a little more grace. I mean, I'm, I've had conversations with my mom recently, like, were you happy? Like, were you in a relationship where you were like sexually happy and like getting your needs met? I know her eyebrows just started to raise like, girl, what? But honestly, like as... Mm-hmm. As a womb holder, like we're just not taught yeah. to, to, to desire those things. I was talking to a friend in high school and it, I, I'd been masturbating for years. Life was great. Um, she hadn't. And she was you know, looking at getting intimate with her boyfriend and such. Mm-hmm. And she, I was like, you know, sex is supposed to be pleasurable, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the first time anybody had ever said that to her in her entire life. And it's not surprising because like historically, sex has been something that we had to survive. Right. Like you had to survive the act of 
sex, quote unquote. Right. It's very true. Even when we think about, um, you know, different communities or uh, just different cultures where it really wasn't about sex or pleasure. It was about expanding family because the more children you had, basically the more capital you had, the more human capital you had. So there would be one part partner with multiple partners to produce multiple children to hopefully create and expand this sense of like empire. Yeah. Because the larger the family, you can dominate. Therefore, you can survive. You can sustain. Your family has legacy. So it had nothing to do with <laughs> sexual pleasure or sex at all. It was like, all right, you're 14. I believe you have a period. We're going to move forward. Um, you're in line. You're number eight, but you're in line because we need to just extend the family, extend yes. the family. Right. That was the goal. And uh, yeah, and so we just kind of lost. I think a lot of womb holders got lost in this like rhetoric of you're just undeserving, mm -hmm. especially Black folks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm, okay, so we, uh, we're about to complete the show. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any tidbits, um, you know, any shares and then any resources? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I just want to say I appreciate this conversation because it was very open and very real. And when we say that Black folks don't talk about something, it's like, but we, we have the power to change that. And I feel like platforms like this do just that. It's like, we see an issue, well, let's be the people that help to not make it an issue, right? Yeah. One plus two, one, but one plus one equals two. The math is going to math. But um, I want to tell folks that, I, you know, of all these things, I'm also a filmmaker. And I recently just debuted my film, The Big Histo of Black Womb Revolution, that directly talks about medical racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, homophobia in hospital settings for, for Black patients and how we have something that we could do about it. I recently just debuted that and it was so beautiful and it's going on tour this fall. And if you're interested in either seeing the film or having more conversations or open and honest about this, I would be very open to that. And so my Instagram is at M-U-G-A-N-Z-O entertainment. You'll see it right here at the bottom of the little Zoom box here. And um, also my website is the same. It's luganzoentertainment.com where you can learn more and buy tickets and learn about the upcoming tour dates. And then if you're a LinkedIn person like me, I remember a really good mentor was like, you don't like your life, fix your, al fix your al algorithms. And I was like, oh, because your algorithms are shaping what you see and what you ingest. And I was like, that's a word. So yes, so that is- I like that. Yeah, it's uh, my full name, Melissa Muganza Murphy on LinkedIn. So absolutely. So I just am thankful for the space. And on my website, I have resources for anybody that is currently suffering or experiencing any type of uterine health trauma or illness. So I have um, a host of clinicians that are ready to hear you and just support you. I myself am not a clinician. I just want to be very open and honest about that. I respect boundaries and medical ethics. Um, but I do know that I am a resource giver, sharer, and I will do just that. So again, Mugans Entertainment, and I appreciate the space. 
Thank you. I appreciate you so much. Like, I ain't gonna lie, I'm like listening to you share that. It's so, it's so real. And I'm gonna have to get the details to make sure that this is on our resource page at Nika Sherelle so that people can find you and the things that you provide and, you know, context because this is such important work and it's yeah. good we're doing this work together. You yeah. know, like, it, it takes somebody to stand up here and say the things we're saying and talk about the things we're talking about because this is not a common conversation. Right. Yeah. Right. But it can be. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Oh, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Yes, absolutely. All right. So everyone, thank you for joining us today. The ITCAST is our community outreach podcast that increases diversity in conversations on health and sexuality. Through this work, we are creating a world where all people feel loved, honored, and respected. We have our upcoming events. The Global Sexual Health and Freedom Summit is going to be back September 17th and 18th. And to be flat with y'all, this is a global conversation on what makes us human. And it, it's such a beautiful thing to come and be a part of that conversation. It's a very healing space and we want you there. Our early bird tickets are coming soon and you can RSVP at sexhealthsummit.com. Uh, we also have the Chase, which is a kinky queer fun pet play event. It's coming back this October. You can learn more about that at the Chase at sorry Chase.pet. Um, reach out and get one-on-one -on -one coaching with me through the link tree. You can book a free connection session. Um, ask us anything. Again, thank you for the questions in the chat today. We want to hear from you and we're always happy to provide resources and connection. Um, Get access to our bonus content because we're about to go talk about more stuff. <laughs> you can do that on patreon.com slash Nika Sherelle. Learn more about our work at theitcast.com. Subscribe to this YouTube channel and share with your community. All right. Thank you. And we'll see you next time.